It wasn't just like, oh, we can create a poster campaign. But it had to be all of these other things that were around it so that people could, A, do it in a way that was authentic to them, and B, feel, you know, some sense of ownership. Yeah, some people came in and did a little bit, came to a block party, and, you know, we didn't really see them again. But then there were others who came to that block party and then were like, transformed and really got involved. And and we had to be okay with all of those things, right, too. A lot of the work was about, at a base level, destigmatizing conversation around domestic violence, getting people involved, not just with the organization, but just getting them involved in their community. So they really understood this as a long-term endeavor. But it's always, I guess, when we talk about, um, you know, from the ground up, It's really boots on the ground, you know? It's not a hierarchy by any means. It's just who is in that, living that truth every day and how can we not just involve them, but genuinely help them feel ownership. Hello, it's Terrence Roof, and welcome to Illogical by Truth, edited by Airfluence. Today, I have Tanya Allen, who is a professor, associate professor of media arts, design, and technology, the director of graduate programs in media arts, design, and technology. Most importantly for our conversation today, Tanya focused on design as a catalyst for community engagement. Welcome to the show. Tanya. Thank you. Thanks so much. So, um, very first question, just to start us off. I love the idea of design as a catalyst for community engagement. How did your life story lead you to that that idea, that concept? Like, wh- what in your the world of design and community engagement sort of landed you in that space? Sure. <clears throat> well, I won't give you the super long <laughs> answer. I'll try not, but. I mean, my my background is actually not in design. Mm. So I have an undergraduate degree in history. Um, so I think my approach to design, first of all, is like very rooted in the humanities and the social sciences mm. and sort of trying to understand the world and the human experience. But also, I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Mm. Uh, my parents were both teachers and academics. Uh, my father, in particular, was a historian of science. Mm. But very much uh, a lot of his work, which I grew up hearing a lot about, was about the history of um, science and eugenics and wow. um, social science, you know, social, the social component of social. science, so science wow. and society, really. Wow. And um, so I think that, that that really rooted me in a, a belief that your contribution to the world is about Social change is about equity. Uh, is um, a, a, you know, or that's what you're striving for yeah. anyway, right? So that's kind of the the short of it. St. Louis also um, is a very very segregated city. Yeah. I lived in the I lived in the city, and so I kind of grew up mm-hmm. sort of seeing inequality, seeing yeah. civil unrest. Mm-hmm. When Michael Brown happened, that yeah. was very I mean very very close to me and close to where I lived in the city. Fairly close, not super close. Um, so, I mean, so all of that, I think, was always kind of swirling around. And even when I started uh, going into design and practicing design, I always wanted to do it with the agenda of 
engaging with communities, engaging with activists and organizations mm-hmm. that are working in communities for community equality um, and stuff like that. So I think, you know, all of those things kind of influenced my um, interest in this type of work. Before I moved to Raleigh, I was living in Boston, and I was working with a lot of nonprofits there intentionally, wanting Mm -hmm. to work with nonprofits. And part of the reason I moved to Raleigh was to get a graduate degree in graphic design. So my background is in Brand, branding, you know, strategy work, graphic design, communications, et cetera. And I think part of my motivation to do that was really um, being confronted with how little I knew about mm. what I was doing. So, so I was really winging it. Yeah. And I don't always think that's bad, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But I became increasingly aware that while I was while I was winging it, and I think doing some good work with some organizations, I wasn't really inspecting what I was doing to the degree that I wanted yeah. to be. And so I kind of used graduate school as a way to take a pause from that. And I still work with many of the organizations that I did, you know, when I uh, from Boston. But anyway, so so I think that became, you know, really an important moment for me to think more intentionally about the ways that I wanted to work with community groups. And, you know, now that I'm teaching, to talk to students about how they engage with community groups, individual community members, et cetera. You know what's fascinating? My, my, uh, My brother works in the Starbucks that was birthed after the Michael Brown incident. Oh, interesting. So they created a Starbucks that, that is an outward face mm. to the community, mm-hmm. and they wanted it to be welcoming to the community. So you can come in, and there's, it doesn't really have the appearance of any other Starbucks. Right, interesting. It's, it's supposed to be a place where the community can come in and strategize and organize together. and awesome. So it's a very unique space. Yeah. And so it speaks to the creative tension that sits yeah. in uh, that area, For that sure. region. And yeah. so... Um, it's helpful to hear that that's that's a part of your ingredients. You yeah, know? yeah. Because um, he, you know, I, you know, he shares how much he is called to do community engagement, even as a barista. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Even as you know. Yeah. So, so our our goal on this podcast is always to help listeners understand uh, local government yep. and to empower people to engage locally. That's really our core desire. But we often do not explain why community engagement is important. We normally just assume its significance. Why would you care to leverage design to activate or engage with community? Community engagement, whether you're an activist or whether you're a resident, I think holds a very similar core principle to Mm -hmm. design, which is trying to take an existing condition Mm -hmm and transform it into a preferred condition. Mm, And I think that, you know, so so I I think I come to design with that and working with communities, whether it's individuals or activists, sort of with that same common goal. I think one of the things that we in design don't do as well, that I think community engagement, you know, again, individuals, but especially in the community activist world, and this isn't universal, but is we don't always interrogate Mm. who is this preferred condition for, 
How do we know this is a preferred condition that we're trying to take the existing one and turn it into? You know, who are we engaging in this process? Are we thinking about it from all points of view? And with it, community engagement in general, writ yeah. large, there's so many different players yeah. that are always at the table that you're sort of confronted <laughs> with those differences of opinion, perspective, agenda, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so I think that, you know, a part of that for design too and design thinking is is kind of embracing that, the, wow. all of those differences and trying to. Yes. And trying to make sense of it. So, mm-hmm. so I do think that that's also in the kind of trajectory of design, design research, design studies. And that's really where my okay. work is rooted now is sort of in design studies and design research um, at, at NC State. That I think that, that that sort of coming together and understanding and trying to embrace mm-hmm. that messiness is not always something that we've done in design, mm. but I think we have some strategies for making sense of it that can be really helpful to community organizers and engagement, because I think a lot of times people who are engaging in you know community work, they're doing it from a very personal, yeah. passionate perspective, yeah. which is great and is so essential, yeah. but I think also sometimes can sort of I don't want to say cloud necessarily, yeah, yeah. but can impact the way yeah. that you're engaging in the work, yeah. right? And I, I like I like the <clears> word <throat> messiness. I've heard several groups or at least government entities or institutions shy away from community because it's not clean and neat. Right. And I just appreciate that word messy. And we're not talking about messy in a, in a negative sense. We're just saying there's a linear process. As a PhD student and graduate, there's a way in which I'm trained to think in a linear way. Yep. In community, there's no straight line. Right. There's a left, right, front, back. There's a pause, continued. Yes. <laughs> there's no, there's no, so when, we, when, when, when I'm thinking of messy, I'm thinking in that way. How are you defining messy? Because I think as I think what you're talking about is the, is the place by which it becomes attractive to people. Yeah. Or it becomes right. something to people. Or you know, I mean, I think messiness in whatever definition is yeah. always going to be a little uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah. and so it's sort of I think it's a little bit of a paradigm shift yeah. in to your point, what you were just saying, is not seeing messy as negative, but seeing it as an essential part of the process. And that it's never not going to be messy because we're moving through time. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Things are always progressing. Things are always changing. And I'll kind of answer that, too, by saying that what a term that we use, which is, is not a design, you know, Based term is this idea of wicked problems. I mean, it is sort of a design-based problem, based term. But and wicked problems aren't like world hunger. Of course, is a wicked problem. It's very complex. It's very messy. But you know, very small problems can also be wicked problems. And you know, so some of the definitions of a wicked problem are that it's never going to be fully solved. You know, um, there's always going to be some other issue that is created by solving part or of a wicked problem. And so to kind of go into it with your eyes open to that, that, look, you know, 
we're addressing, we're get, we want to try to understand this problem. We know there's going to be a lot of different perspectives. This is a problem that, I don't know, has been sort of emerging over the last 25, 50 yeah. years in various forms, whatever it is. And, you know, we're going to come to the table sort of understanding that there is never going to be any perfect solution to this, but to honestly and authentically try to address part of it in the best way that we can and then not to walk away and, um, and like, sort of clean your hands of it and say, okay, I'm done. My job is done. So I think in design, it's also this paradigm shift from sort of coming in like fixing the problem and leaving mm. to kind of almost looking at a, a colleague of mine used this metaphor, which I love, thinking of our role as designers. And again, I think community activists especially or community organiza- organizations think of it like this too. Think of us as like gardeners, like mm. tending and cultivating. Really good. And we have to stay connected. Really and good. we have to, you know, read what we've done in the intervention. That's good. And, you know, and know that it's never going to really be done. And so I think that's kind of part of the messiness that's is good. that it's it's an ongoing process, you know. That's good. You know, it's, you know, it's um, amazing to me. For us to have our eyes wide open, we have to see these social problems outside the context of political mm. narratives, political campaigns, because they have to present a solution. Yeah. And it has to have an end product. That end product may or may not exist in that person's lifetime. Right. And they have to be honest about how wicked the problem is so that they're entering to contribute. Yes. <laughs> and not not entering to solve so that the expectation around what local governments can or can't do yeah. can also help temper the expectation of community members entering yes. that conversation. Well, I think that's a really good, I mean, and, you know, not to go down a political <laughs> climate hole by any means, but I do think that as citizens, the, the political, you know, narrative has conditioned us to yeah. expect these perfect yeah. solutions. And if yeah. there's any crack in them, yeah. then we can't stand for that. And sure. so that reframing of expectations that you're talking about it, you know, whether it's sort of from a design perspective or from a, a political or a governmental perspective is so essential. And that's something I think we can all continue to practice because. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 and, and, and you, you use the word, you use, you use words like uh, participatory and, mm-hmm. and co-creative process as a means um, to produce empowered residents and citizens. Yeah. Most of the everyday listeners out there probably wouldn't use those terms rarely, if at all. Um, How should we understand those terms, participatory, co-creation? How would they empower, create ownership and and residence themselves? Well, I mean, I think when I use the word, you know, when I I talk about participatory, so I think those are two different things, first Mm -hmm. of all, a little bit. So, and, and I'll kind of talk about it from a design perspective, because it might be talked about differently in community engagement and other stuff. But from a design perspective, when we talk about participatory, it's quite literally just asking, you know, potential users, potential community members, whoever's going to be interacting with whatever it is that we're creating, we're asking them to participate in 
some aspect of the design process, whether that's initial information gathering, whether that's giving feedback to a, directly to a design, so having community meetings, whether that's um, you know helping with us with prototyping, whatever yeah. that is. And I think that's slightly different than co-creative because mm-hmm. participatory is asking for feedback, mm-hmm. but the designer is still kind of in control uh, right, of right. what it is that's being created. Really good. But co-creative, at least the way that I define and the way I like to talk about it, is really co-authorship. So it's slightly different in that I think you're partnering with community members from the beginning to understand the problem. You are not the expert. You are looking to community members as content experts and as experts of a lived experience. You do not have any pre, or to the extent that you can't, I mean, you know, we work with clients and we work with municipalities who have agendas, so we can't just go in there and, you know, totally. Um, But we try not to have predefined ideas or solutions, so to be open-minded and to really learn from what the community is telling us and not just get feedback from them or whatever, and endorsements and stuff like that. So I think that's those are like slightly that's different. Good. And um, and I, I really do use the language of like community expertise mm. a lot because I think that even when we engage, and I, I, when I say we, I'm talking generally just about the field of design. Mm. But I think when we have engaged, yeah. we're using, you know, a lot of times we, we can kind of fall into a trap where we're using community members as, you know, like a focus group yeah. or as a little litmus test, but not really seeing them as experts of their lived experience. And I think reframing it a little bit does help us all be yeah. more open. And I I spend a lot of time in community. I'm normally hearing a request for co-authorship. I love mm-hmm. how you mm-hmm. you put that. I'm, I'm normally hearing that request. And I'm normal I, I normally, and this is just my own experience, so I'm not casting abroad. I normally see institutions um, struggle to see expertise in community because it's a messy element. Yeah, yeah. They're used to that nice, clean, somebody that can deliver totally. a particular outcome or message right. in the drop of a dime. And so that messiness still creeps in yeah. in the perception of. And so I think framing would help. Yeah. Um, I think we'll help in that way as well. Well, and I'll just say also that I think it's that's why it's really important to, to identify community leaders Mm. or people who can sort of be that gateway to the larger, the community at large. Because, I mean, it's it's virtually impossible. You can't speak to everybody in the community. But if you establish those partnerships uh, uh, with representatives, let's say, or key players, then you automatically build trust. And, you know, you have a, a, a strong relationship to the – so I think that kind of stuff is very important for design um, in general, especially working with communities. And now you, your, your work uh, emphasized social change. Mm-hmm. And not just social change, but from the ground up. Why would this be important? <laughs> Why would yeah. anybody ever want, <laughs> want to take that journey? Totally. Like, what's the benefits of that approach? <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, – in a nutshell, it's the, you know, coming at it again from a design perspective, but even from a policy, yeah. it's the community members that are going to be living That's with right. the decisions, That's right? right? That's right. Um, and 
I talk a lot with my students and even with my clients when we're when we're sort of engaging in this work or clients or partners. You know, if you build it, they won't necessarily come. <laughs> so, especially when we're talking about community engagement, there has to be a long-term strategy yeah. involved in not just getting people engaged in the first place, but keeping them engaged. And yeah. one of the best strategies is to have buy-in yeah. because people have contributed That's to right. the process and they feel That's like right. it's theirs. It's right. They own it. That's I mean, because right. they're the ones who are going to be living with it. And so I worked for many years with an organization in, um, in Boston, in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and I still work with them. They're in a different phase of their work now. But um, that was really focused on um, preventing domestic violence. Mm. And, um, and their whole strategy was, you know, there's these statistics that uh, people who are in violent situations, if they don't have a strong community network around them, mm there it's very difficult for them to get out of those violent situations, right? So a lot of the work was about, at a base level, destigmatizing conversation mm -hmm. around domestic violence, getting people involved, not just with the organization, but just getting them involved in their community. So they really understood this as a long-term endeavor of changing community dynamics, yeah. um, getting so many people from the community involved. And so I'll just give you like an anecdote with a campaign that we did where, you know, we put together this task force of like 35 people, all different ages, you know, genders, ethnicities, who were already kind of engaged in the mm. community. Um, and then we they were involved in everything from sort of the messaging to the strategy for mm -hmm. like, how are we going to, it was a campaign that we okay. were going to do. So um, how do we get other people involved in this? You know, we had like block parties wow. where people would just come. Wow. They became like involved in, they were the content for like the wow. photographs that we wow. created, not just this task That's force right. group, right. but other members of the community. So they were all kind of becoming a part of the campaign through its creation yeah. of it. And that, you know, then they went out and they like hung up the posters and the little wow. thingies that we created and, you know, this whatever. And, and then they also, in addition to that, you know, we had these other things that were like these kitchen table conversations yeah. that were more about, you know, really getting people to connect with other people. So my point in like telling that story is that it wasn't just like, Oh, we can create a co poster right. campaign. That's right. But it had to be all of these other things that were around it yes. so mm -hmm. that people could, A, do it in a way that was authentic That's to right. them. That's right. And B, feel, you know, some sense of ownership. Yeah. Yeah, some people came in and did a little bit, came to a block party, and, you know, yeah. we didn't really see them again. But then there were others who came to that block party and wow. then were like, transformed wow. and really got involved. And, and we had to be okay with all of those That's things, right, right, That's right. too. Um, but it's always, I guess, when we talk about, um, you know, from the ground up, yeah. it's really boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a hierarchy by That's any right. means. It's just who is in that, living that truth yes. every day. Yeah. And how can we not just involve them, yes. but genuinely help them feel ownership yeah, yeah, yeah. over and and I don't you know and I don't know if that was the right strategy yeah. it were you know but it was kind of, it's kind of part of a process of like really intentionally wanting people to become a part of all phases of whatever the program is yes. that you're sort of creating and you know what's 
sort of some of my personal experiences in Ground Up is part of that Ground Up journey is around you, the listener. I was a listener in, in that moment, listening to pain, mm-hmm. historical struggle, not just saying trust, but like, why is there distrust? And they, you know, sharing that pain. And sometimes I might be the end yep. product or the, the outcome or the output is yelling at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or crying with me or whatever that may be. So it's, that's some of that messiness yep. that you you have to almost expect. Right. When there's generations of of disparity and pain and struggle. Trauma. Um, and trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and again, this doesn't eliminate their expert role. Yeah. It just allows you to discover discover that yeah. <laughs> wisdom that's in that space. Well, and I think that like, I don't know if this is true in the work that you do, but I think in design, there's this, or there can be, this assumption of like, oh, I'm bringing this to you. Yeah. You should want me <laughs> to be involved. Look at how lucky you are yes. that I'm bringing this to you. Instead of yeah. I value your time, so I value your voice, That's I value so your experience and your knowledge, so and I want to make this an enjoyable experience so for you. Good. So, you know, back to this group that we worked at, uh, the you know, the neighborhood was, you know, middle, lower income, mm-hmm. and everything that we did, or that they did, I shouldn't mm-hmm. take credit for this, involved food and fellowship. Wow. Because they were like, wow. we want to feed people. You know, yeah. like this will be, this will take a burden off of them. Yeah. It will show us, show that, you know, indicate because this is true that we value their time. Yeah. And, you know, we want this to be an enjoyable experience yeah. that we don't expect them, you That's know, right. we, right. they don't owe us anything. Right. We owe That's them, right. if anything. That's and, right. you know, so there was always like that, that sort of approach to mm. it, which was we value you. Yes. And I think a lot of times we, aren't, uh, you know, I'll just speak for design, there's an assumption that by inviting them to the table that we've somehow, like, given them this great opportunity, given people this great opportunity, and we need to do that a little better. It's not just in design. I've actually heard individuals say, oh, we brought this and they didn't want it. Uh, They missed out on this. No, 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 no. Their input is the goal. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You missed out on the opportunity to... To, to really pull from that wisdom. Yes, um, that's a really good. Know. That's a, that's an interesting way to say, yeah, say that. But but I uh, I like that you merge design thinking with community engagement. I don't see that often. Mm-hmm. Usually, I see community engagement as a static moment, a one time invitation. Yeah, not a relationship. Right, right, right. <laughs> one second, but I like how you merge those two to, together. What does that look like in local communities? Can you help? Let's see how these two sort of fields or concepts that normally people don't marry together, how do you do that? I mean, there okay, so there's a lot of different ways that I guess I have done that. And I think one of the things, so, you know, it has been through sort of workshops, okay. for example, but where we kind of go through the design thinking mm. process. And, and I think one of the things that is – helpful is it's actually it's pretty fun wow, like it's yes, fun cool. to do it it's that's a way cool. it's a social activity yeah it's a way for people to get kind of connected to one another 
Um, it's fun to like cool. create things, and especially when you sort of relieve them or us all of the burden of it being perfect, That's right? So um, I mean, just that sort of activity yeah. of both physical, creative, social, whatever, just breaks the ice in a way that yeah. I think other things don't. So that's kind of one, you know, very, like, tactical cool. thing. I think also co-producing things mm -hmm. together. So when I'm doing a workshop or when I'm um, engaging, you know, a group or whatever it is, I love to have them have to produce something that we, you know, talk about. Wow. So it's not just them giving feedback, it's them putting ideas and That's thoughts great. and images and whatever on paper That's and great. then talking through why they did what they did, you know? And I think there's kind of, um, I hate the word empowering, but I yeah. think there is an energizing. That's so good component to that. So, and then you've also got like an artifact and you've got yeah. kind of evidence of, of what um, what the thinking is, so good. which is can then be used to yes. describe or explain something in the future, can be pointed back to, and, so and, and as evidence of like, this is what we heard because That's you're so showing good. us that this is, this, this is what you were yes. thinking. And now here's how we've responded to it, or here's what we think our next step is going yeah. to be, or, you know, or whatever that is. So, I mean, that's kind of like the more um, maybe specific way yes. of answering that question. No, I, 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 what I what I what I hear um, is is sort of why we started this whole podcast with Ella Baker. Her philosophy, like you already have what you need. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you already you're already prepared to right. do what you need to do. Right. I'm a facilitator, but you are you are the leader. Right. And oftentimes I go in communities where they don't see themselves as creators. They don't see themselves as designers. Right. But they live in a history that have produced amazing creators. Absolutely. Amazing designers. Yes. All local. Yeah. And it's almost like that history just need you just need to be reminded of that yes. history. So I like when you was like that word empower assumes that I'm transferring something to you. Yeah. No, you I you just need to be awoken to what's already right. <laughs> living in and given the space. <laughs> yeah, given the space good. and the opportunity to contribute it. Because I think good. that's what it's like, okay, contribute now. You know, no, and it's, so here's good. this little window. That's like, so good. And you have to that's like so shove your ideas through it that's rather so than being given the space so to good. do it. Yeah. And and I consider that one of my weak areas because that the messiness that produce a rich a rich meal in the end. Yeah. For me, I'm an I'm an ingredient guy. They said only two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta add the rice at this point. Yeah. Sometimes you add the rice an hour. Later. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, uh, Not the worst. And so, <laughs> and so for me, um I often enter the room and I go, listen, I was trained at, for many years to where I ended with a PhD. And it has mm -hmm. created blind spots for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in creating. Mm -hmm. And I want to be transparent about mm -hmm. that. So I'm going to march in this linear fashion. I need y'all to move me left and right. right. I need you to move me back. I enter the room stating my weaknesses so right. that we become a full room right. and not just leaning on a social perception of expertise. Right. But like, listen, you're helping me fill in blind spots. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so for me, that was one of my areas. Yeah. I, I 
the rice has to be put in by two, yeah. two, in two minutes. Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't know if this kind of, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I also think in, you know, so a lot of times in engaging with with community members or, again, groups or whoever, I'm sort of walking through the design mm. process. But, but I think what I'm trying to emphasize is, you know, aside from that sort of fun part, is the iterative nature ah, of design, which I think is very that's aligned good. with how that's community good. engagement and policy works. Right. Like it's iterative, that's you know, right. and right. and it's not going to be solved right away. And there's right. going to need to be a constant that's evaluation, right. tweaking, changing, or whatever. But also um, adaptable, yeah. flexible, and adaptive thinking too, so that. And this maybe goes more, you know, not the community yeah. members so much as the policymakers and, you know, the government officials that they might be up, who I understand yes. have some very hard agendas that they need to yes. fill. So I think from a from sort of the community member standpoint, also saying, okay, this is <clears throat> part one of this process, yeah. part two of this process. I, it's just, it's, it's, I just have to keep coming back, yeah. you know, and- yeah. Um, and so to kind of set expectations, like what we were That's talking right. about earlier in the conversation right. about this is a process, this is iterative, you know, we got to tweak, we got to try some things out, tweak. And so I do try to kind of bring that into um, whatever work that I'm doing with the community members as well. I want to give you two, two more questions. Some of our listeners do not feel engaged. Um, they don't feel empowered. They don't feel... Um, um, energized um, or creative or heard. Um, and this is something that's um, both said outwardly and through body language and silence. Sure. So you sort of hear that Absolutely. same. What advice would you give to someone seeking to find meaningful community participation that extends beyond just physical involvement um, in meetings or going to the city council or the yeah. county, county commission meeting to a person that's being valued for the generation of the, the generation of ideas, the creation of ideas. Yeah. So it's not just attendance, but it's what you produce is important. Like, how, what advice do you have for someone that's seeking to to move from this conversation to yeah. plug into more meaningful engagement? I mean, that is. I mean, that, that that's a tough question. That's yeah. a really tough question. Um, and I'll kind of answer that maybe in two ways. First of all. I, I don't think it's the job of the community member so as much as it's the job That's of so the people good. in power That's to so try attempt to bream people in. That's so so that's kind of one thing. And I think but I think what what in my this is just my opinion, but I think what what advice I would give to community members or individuals who feel disconnected, is to try to start to start small mm. um, and to try and to start with something that is a meaningful to, to them and where they can potentially see change. So whether that's a city block, that's whether that's something between you and your neighbor, that's whether good. that's something within a social circle or network that you already have established, I think those, you know, not putting the burden on yourself yeah. to, jump from no engagement to like full engagement. It's a process, right? So and it it's it's baby steps. And I know again for me, 
you know, for me to feel like I can move forward, I just need to take the first step. Yeah. And that can often and often does happen yeah. by engaging with people that you're already connected to and, you know, floating an idea with them of something that you might want to change in your immediate community or whatever that is. Um, I mean, so that's kind of one thing. I will say that that there are really great resources out there also, especially for people who are kind of interested in design yes. thinking. So IDEO, which I'm, I'm sure you know about, is a fairly big like design firm. They have a whole wing that's open IDEO that wow. has a lot of tools and toolkits and, you know, to kind of use design thinking in different capacities, yeah. but community engagement being one of them. Um, so I think that's a really great resource cool. for people who are, again, maybe tapped in, maybe yeah. not, but especially if they want to test out some ideas, yeah. you know, in an informal network, try yeah. to do something in their very immediate community, again, maybe even in their city block or between a couple <laughs> neighbors, whatever that is. Um, I think that's a really good resource. I also think, you know, if you have access, if you have a, a bigger project or agenda and you're really interested, you know, but maybe going to the, you know, city government yeah. feels a little daunting, you know, reaching out to people who are at in universities who are doing projects um, or, you know, in colleges of design. I know at NC State, we are always wanting to do extension right. and engagement work and partner with communities to help mm -hmm. them. And so those can be excellent resources to both, you know, help with a, with an idea that you have and how do you frame it and how do you put it, to, you know, what do you want to do with it, yes. brainstorm, all that kind of stuff. Um, but also that have different, you know, sort of connections to mm -hmm. other entities, you know, or institutions mm -hmm. or whatever. So those are kind of my two, I think, sort of pieces of advice. I, I, <laughs> one, advice. The first one I, I love because so many community members carry that burden. Yeah. That, that it's their job yeah. to feed their kids, go to work, to somehow make it to a meeting or make it to it. Like it's that weight yeah. is on them. Yeah. And I love the the pivot of yeah. no, the weight is on because in the research world. It's the researcher. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. That has to find representation. Totally, <laughs> it's totally, like, totally. It's a job. Right. I mean, that's a part of your steps. Right. Um, but I think local government, um, that pivot to where it's on them to have to go and make sure that they're hearing the right yeah. voice. Yeah. And the second part. And inviting. Yes. Inviting people. Not yes. just like it's open, but yes. I'm, I would like to invite you that's to the so table. Good. Yeah. And, it, and then we, again, Ella Baker, we brought her the, the one of the uh, archivists from Shaw and she talked about the room. Um, the hall is still up, but there was renovations. But there was a small little basement classroom. Yeah. She started small. And yeah. Changed the whole United States. But yeah. it, was a, it was a small little basement. Totally. College students. And and she she started there. Yeah. And exactly. most people would have tried to start at the provost. Right. <laughs> no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we feel like in order to make change, we have this assumption it needs to happen sure. at a certain level or sure. certain scale. Sure. And that can prevent us that's from right. starting, from taking that step. So, I mean, that's a perfect example of get a couple people together, have a coffee, right. talk about what you might want to do, talk about what the issues are, that's you right. know. But it doesn't have to be separate from community 
you know, uh, yes. social, socialization yes. or community. Yes. And in fact, it shouldn't be, in that's my so opinion. Good. I mean, that's, so good. that's what makes it fun, right? <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I, you know, some some individuals are going to be hearing you and, and hearing about IDO for the first time, and they've never been in that space. Right. And so um, they're trying to see where the welcome mat is for that space. And I'm glad that you gave some areas in which they have ownership. Yeah. Your yeah. own little coffee shop, your own yeah. space. I think that's powerful. Yeah. So last question um, outside of asking or sharing how people can reach you is what best practice practices from across, across the country can you share? Where are communities doing this well? Yeah. Like what? where, where are the sort of, sort of uh, highlights? Sure. In the country or, the, or, the, or, the, or in the world that they really have a grip on this idea. I mean, I'll kind of, um, I'll give maybe a couple different examples that are that are different scales of things. Okay. So here locally, Aaron White, who ran Community Food Lab, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, him and yeah. his work, but I think he really did an excellent yeah. job of, you know, and he's in the PhD program now, mm-hmm. and sort of there's a little bit of a pause on that, um, but of really thinking yeah. about design thinking, community engagement, and public policy and government sort of all intertwined with one another. Um, He worked on projects through Community Food Lab that were very small to more systems-based. And I think in that way, working at these different levels was really powerful in thinking about the very different ways that community engagement and community and change happens. So I think we have a tendency to think about it like we were just talking about at this kind of policy level. But it happens at all these different levels. Right. And in working in this space, I think what what his is a great example of is, is working in all mm. of these different levels simultaneously and kind of understanding that those are all necessary to mm. larger change. And in Community Food Lab, it's about food and food systems and food access and stuff like that. Another sort of organization that is working in New York City that I think is really interesting is called the Center for Urban Pedagogy. Mm. And that actually brings together designers and um, community. I mean, it could be like nonprofits. It could be like vendors or whatever to help make um, policy Mm. more legible and understandable to – to, you know, to residents or to yeah, community members. Cool. And I think that's a really interesting initiative um, because part of what is, yeah. I think, a barrier to community engagement is not understanding yeah, the so policy good. and the procedures so that are potentially in place fighting against, you know, whatever the changes that you want to have happen. And so on a, on a level, and again, they're not yeah. trying to, like, make every policy legible yes. but it but they're doing you know they're taking one policy around i don't know street vending or whatever it is and sort of understanding how that works so i think that's a really good one yeah. and then i mean i do think for as imperfect yeah. as it is i think what the city council in minneapolis yeah. did around housing and the yeah. way that they engaged yeah. the community i mean exhaustive yeah. two year wow. and just um, 150 meetings or something yeah, like that. Wow, like, I mean, it wow, was an ongoing wow. process. And the mayor himself, when they were, so the background is, you know, changing their zoning so there's no single-family houses yeah. in, um, in Minneapolis um, to um, allow for more 
density to allow for more housing equity yeah. and housing access. Historically, zoning mm-hmm. is a is has been a very um, racist tactic mm. for excluding people of yeah. color from home ownership, yeah. um, and so. And that's all still yeah, in bed. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. it's, you know, yeah. economic, but that's all yeah. still there. Yeah. Um, and so to look at that and to Absolutely. take such a bold move to change their zoning policy, and I'm not going to, I'm going to paraphrase this, not exactly, but the mayor said, you know, his historic injustice of this magnitude mm-hmm. and economic injustice of this magnitude requires a, like, revolutionary wow. change in the way we're thinking about this thing. Wow. So when we speak about the perspectives, it you know, you need a city yeah. council who is willing to take the risk yeah. to do something that revolutionary. Yeah. You know, we'll see how it all yeah. plays out. Obviously, there's yeah. a lot of other issues going on, not just in Minneapolis, but all yeah. over the country. But I do think that that move Absolutely. was really powerful and a real endorsement of you know, uh, of, of trying to make change, yeah. not just around um, the procedures, yeah. but also in some really fundamental policies yeah. that, you know, have hic- historically really created um, generational trauma, have prevented yeah. generational wealth building. I mean, all, when you were talking about going back yes. and going back, that's really looking, taking yeah. the long view. And I think that's really inspirational to me. You, you know, we, we, uh, we had a conversation uh, on a previous episode around um, this idea of allowing people to fully understand when decisions are being made. So once you decode mm-hmm. the language to where it's understandable, there's a timing that happens around zoning and and most mm-hmm. people are activated when they start to see physical representation of those, those decisions. Yeah. But what would also be helpful is like when these decisions are made. So when you can organize and actually have influence on the decision, on the co-ownership yeah. of those decisions. And uh, I just love the resources that you've that you've given out. Um, you have articles that you've written, you've You've uh, taught at many different workshops and seminars and conventions. How can people reach you and your work? And, and I, I, I was poking around on uh, in your work, and, and the, the mapping work that you're doing right now is actually pretty exciting. Actually. Yes, I'm very excited. I am very excited about that. Yes, thank you. Um, so uh, I am on Instagram, although uh, I am not a big social media poster. I consume. <laughs> I don't post quite so much. I need to kind of flip that, I think, a little bit. Um, but uh, but at NC State, I have a lab with mm. a colleague, Sarah Queen, who's an architect, that does use mapping and visualization as a way to kind of um, illuminate and uncover imbi- invisible mm. factors contributing specifically to housing inequity okay. and inequity in the built environment. That's sort of a, our focus. Um, we are working on a new project, which I'm very excited about, that is looking at housing inequality throughout the U.S., but wow. through this region. Wow. So Raleigh, Triangle, you know, the region itself. And um, and I, th- what I'm really excited about with that project is, is how it's sort of evolved. So mm-hmm. we started off thinking, well, we really want to hear from the residents, which yeah. we do. Yeah. Um, but then as we stepped back, we're like, well, there's a lot of people working in this space, obviously. There's yeah. activists, there's politicians, there's developers. Right. Um, and so we really need to start to understand what we're, as 
what we were talking about earlier, how each of these perspectives and agenda are contributing uh, to where we are now, so but also good. how we got to where we are so now. Good. So we're kind of stepping back and saying, you know, we really need to understand this landscape a little yeah. bit better. Um, we need to start to, and it also gives us an opportunity to start to have conversations yes. with and invite them into the process yes. with the people who are our boots on the ground yes. working on this and to form sort of our own opinion, research, whatever we want to call it, based on those mm. conversations. So so I'm excited because it's, um, it's sort of going to be using and testing a lot of the things that we were mm. talking about today, mm. um, building a network, you know, hopefully building yeah. um, buy-in, speaking yeah. to people at all different sort of levels, you yeah. know, whatever. Um, so I'm really excited about that. So that project is going to be encapsulated. We have a, an NC State website address, which is design.ncsu.edu slash collab, C-O-L-A-B. So if people are interested in... If there's anybody out there listening to this podcast who is intimately familiar with this, wants to reach out um, to be a part of this project network, would love to hear from people. Um, and then I'm just on the NC State website too, so you can shoot me an email and I'd love to, you know, talk more to anybody about this. And again, I, work. I, I thank you. Your, your graphics on that work is amazing. Oh, right? thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I, this has been an episode of uh, Illogical by Truth, um, edited by Airfluence. And we thank you again for listening and supporting. So I'm Terrence Truth, and I'll see you on the next episode.